Chapter Nine, Section One of the History of Mr. Polly by H. G. Wells. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Adrian Pretzelis. Chapter Nine, Section One, The Potwell Inn. But when a man has broken through the paper walls of everyday circumstance, those unsubstantial walls that hold so many of us securely prisoned from the cradle to the grave, he has made a discovery. If the world does not please you, you can change it. Determine to alter it at any price, and you can change it altogether. You may change it to something sinister and angry, to something appalling. But it may be that you will change it to something brighter, something more agreeable, and at the worst something much more interesting. There is only one sort of man who is absolutely to blame for his own misery, and that is the man who finds life dull and dreary. There are no circumstances in the world that determined action cannot alter, unless perhaps they are the walls of a prison cell, and even those will dissolve and change, I am told, into the infirmary compartment at any rate, for the man who can fast with resolution. I give these things as facts and information, and with no moral intimations. And Mr. Polly, laying awake at night, with renewed indigestion, with Miriam sleeping sonorously beside him, and a general air of inevitableness about his situation, saw through it. Understood, there was no inevitable any more, and escaped his former despair. He could, for example, clear out. It became a wonderful and alluring phrase to him, clear out. Why had he never thought of clearing out before? He was amazed and a little shocked at the unimaginative and superfluous criminality in him that had turned old, cramped, and stagnant Fishbourne into a blaze and new beginnings. I wish from the bottom of my heart I could say he was properly sorry. But something constricting and restrained seemed to have been destroyed by that flare. Fishbourne wasn't the world. That was the new, the essential fact of which he had lived so lamentably in ignorance. Fishbourne, as he had known it and hated it, so that he wanted to kill himself to get out of it, wasn't the world. The insurance money he was to receive made everything humane and kindly and practicable. He would clear out with justice and humanity. He would take exactly twenty-one pounds, and all the rest he would leave to Miriam. That seemed to him absolutely fair. Without him she could do all sorts of things, all the sorts of things she was constantly urging him to do. And he would go off along the white road that led to Garchester, and on to Crowgate, and so to Tunbridge Wells where there was a toad rock he had heard of but never seen. It seemed to him this must needs be a marvel, and so to other towns and cities. He would walk and loiter by the way, and sleep in inns at night, and get odd jobs here and there, 
and talked to strange people. Perhaps he would get quite a lot of work and prosper, and if he did not do so, he would lie down in front of a train, or wait for a warm night, and then fall into some smooth, broad river. Not so bad as sitting down to a dentist, not nearly so bad, and he would never open a shop any more. Never. So the possibilities of the future presented themselves to Mr. Polly as he lay awake at nights. It was springtime, and in the woods, so soon as one got out of reach of the sea wind, there would be anemones and primroses. A month later a leisurely and dusty tramp, plump equatorially and slightly bald, with his hands in his pockets and his lips puckered to a contemplative whistle, strolled along the river-bank between Uppingdon and Potwell. It was a profusely budding spring day, and greens such as God had never permitted in the world before in human history, though indeed they come every year, were mirrored vividly in a mirror of unequally unprecedented brown. For a time the wanderer stopped and stood still, and even the thin whistle died away from his lips as he watched a water-vole run to and fro upon a little headland across the stream. The vole plopped into the water and swam and dived, and only when the last ring of its disturbance had vanished did Mr. Polly resume his thoughtful course to nowhere in particular. For the first time in many years he had been leading a healthy human life, living constantly in the open air, walking every day for eight or nine hours, eating sparingly, accepting every conversational opportunity, not even disdaining the discussion of possible work, and beyond mending a hole in his coat that he had made while negotiating barbed wire with a borrowed needle and thread in a lodging-house, he had done no work at all. Neither had he worried about business or about times and seasons. And, for the first time in his life, he had seen the Aurora Borealis. So far the holiday had cost him very little. He had arranged it on a plan that was entirely his own. He had started out with four five-pound notes and a pound divided into silver, and he had gone by train from Fishbourne to Ashington. At Ashington he had gone to the post-office, obtained a registered letter, and sent his four five-pound notes with a short brotherly note addressed to himself at Gilhampton post-office. He sent this letter to Gilhampton for no other reason in the world that he liked the name of Gilhampton, and the rural suggestion of its containing county, which was Sussex, and, having so dispatched it, he set himself to discover, mark down, and walk to Gilhampton, and so recover his resources. And having got to Gilhampton at last, he changed his five-pound note, bought four-pound postal orders, and repeated his manoeuvre with nineteen pounds. After a lapse of fifteen years, he rediscovered this interesting world about which so many people go incredibly blind and bored. He went along country roads while all the birds were piping and chirruping and cheeping and singing, and looked at fresh new things, 
and felt as happy and irresponsible as a boy with an unexpected half-holiday. And if ever the thought of Miriam returned to him, he controlled his mind. He came to country inns, and sat for unmeasured hours, talking of this and that to those sage carters who rest forever in the taps of country inns, while the big, sleek, brass-jingling horses wait patiently outside with their wagons. He got a job with some van people who were wandering about the country with swings and a steam roundabout, and remained with them for three days, until one of their dogs took a violent dislike to him and made his duties unpleasant. He talked to tramps and wayside labourers. He snoozed under hedges by day and in outhouses and hayricks at night, and once, but only once, he slept in a casual ward. He felt as the etiolated grass and daisies must do when you move the garden roller away to a new place. He gathered a quantity of strange and interesting memories. He crossed some misty meadows by moonlight, and the mist lay low on the grass, so low that it scarcely reached above his waist, and houses and clumps of trees stood out like islands in a milky sea, so sharply denned was the upper surface of the mist-bank. He came nearer and nearer to a strange thing that floated like a boat upon this magic lake, and behold! Something moved at the stern, and a rope was whisked at the prow, and it had changed into a pensive cow, drowsy-eyed, regarding him. He saw a remarkable sunset in a new valley near Maidstone, a very red and clear sunset, a wide redness under a pale cloudless heaven, and with the hills all round the edge of the sky a deep purple-blue and clear and flat, looking exactly as he had seen mountains painted in pictures. He seemed transported to some strange country, and would have felt no surprise if the old labourer he came upon, leaning silently over a gate, had addressed him in an unfamiliar tongue. Then, one night, just towards dawn, his sleep upon a pile of brushwood was broken by the distant rattle of a racing motor-car breaking all the speed regulations, and as he could not sleep again he got up and walked into Maidstone as the day came. He had never been abroad in a town at half-past two in his life before, and the stillness of everything in the bright sunrise impressed him profoundly. At one corner was a startling policeman, standing in a doorway, quite motionless, like a waxen image. Mr. Polly wished him good morning, unanswered, and went down to the bridge over the medway, and sat on the parapet very still and thoughtful, watching the town awaken, and wondering what he should do if it didn't, if the world of men never woke up again. One day he found himself going along a road, with a wide space of sprouting bracken and occasional trees on either side, and suddenly this road became strangely, perplexingly, familiar. "'Lord!' he said, and turned about and stood. "'It can't be!' 
he was incredulous, left the road, and walked along a scarcely perceptible track to the left, and came in half a minute to an old lichenous stone wall. It seemed exactly the bit of wall he had known so well. It might have been but yesterday he was in that place. There remained even a little pile of wood. It became absurdly the same wood. The bracken perhaps was not so high, and most of its fronds still uncoiled. That was all. Here he had stood, it seemed, and there she had sat and looked down upon him. Where was she now, and what had become of her? He counted the years back, and marvelled that beauty should have called to him with so imperious a voice, and signified nothing. He hoisted himself with some difficulty to the top of the wall, and off under the two beeches two schoolgirls, small, insignificant, pigtailed creatures, with heads of blonde and black, with their arms twined about each other's necks, no doubt telling each other the silliest secrets. But that girl with the red hair, was she a countess, was she a queen? Children, perhaps. Had sorrow dared to touch her? Had she forgotten altogether? A tramp sat by the roadside thinking, and it seemed to the man in the passing motor-car he must needs be plotting for another pot of beer. But, as a matter of fact, what the tramp was saying to himself over and over was a variant upon a well-known Hebrew word. Ichabod, the tramp was saying in the voice of one who reasons on the side of the inevitable. It's fair Ichabod, old man. There's no going back to it. It was about two o'clock in the afternoon, one hot day in high May, when Mr. Polly, unhurrying and serene, came to that broad bend of the river to which the little lawn and garden of the Potwell Inn run down. He stopped at the sight of the place, with its deep-tiled roof, nestling under big trees. You never get a decently big, decently shaped tree by the seaside. It signed toward the roadway its sun-blistered green bench and tables, its shapely white windows, and its row of upshooting hollyhock plants in the garden. A hedge separated it from a buttercup-yellow meadow, and beyond stood three poplars in a group against the sky, three exceptionally tall, graceful, and harmonious poplars. It is hard to say what there was about them that made them so beautiful to Mr. Polly but they seemed to him to touch a pleasant scene to a distinction almost divine. He remained admiring them for a long time. At last the need for coarser aesthetic satisfactions arose in him. "'Provinder,' he whispered, drawing near to the inn. "'Cold soiloin for choice, and nut-brown brew, and wheaten bread.' The nearer he came to the place, the more he liked it. The windows on the ground floor were long and low, and they had pleasing red blinds. The green tables outside were agreeably ringed with memories of former drinks, and an extensive grapevine spread level branches across the whole front of the place. Against the wall was a broken oar, 
two boat-hooks and stained and faded red cushions of a pleasure-boat. One went up three steps to the glass-panelled door and peeped into a broad, low room with a bar and beer-engine, behind which were many bright and helpful-looking bottles against mirrors, and great and little pewter measures, and bottles fastened in brass wire upside down with their corks replaced by taps, and a white china cask labelled shrub, and cigar-boxes and boxes of cigarettes, and a couple of toby-jugs, and a beautifully coloured hunting-scene, framed and glazed, showing the most elegant and beautiful people taking piper's cherry-brandy, and cards such as the law requires about the dilution of spirits, and the illegality of bringing children into bars, and satirical verses about swearing and asking for credit, and three very bright, red-cheeked, waxed apples, and a round-shaped clock. But these were the mere background to the really pleasant thing in the spectacle, which was quite the plumpest woman Mr. Polly had ever seen, seated in an armchair in the midst of all these bottles and glasses and glittering things, peacefully and tranquilly, and without the slightest loss of dignity, asleep. Many people would have called her a fat woman, but Mr. Polly's innate sense of epithet told him from the outset that plump was the word. She had shapely brows and a straight, well-shaped nose, kind lines and contentment about her mouth, and beneath it the jolly chins clustered like chubby little cherubim about the feet of an assumptioning Madonna. Her plumpness was firm and pink and wholesome, and her hands, dimpled at every joint, were clasped in front of her. She seemed, as it were, to embrace herself with infinite confidence and kindliness, as one who knew herself good in substance, good in essence, and would show her gratitude to God by that ready acceptance of all that he had given her. Her head was a little on one side, not much, but just enough to speak of trustfulness, and rob her of the stiff effect of self-reliance. And she slept. "'My salt,' said Mr. Polly, and opened the door very softly, divided between the desire to enter and come nearer, and an instinctive indisposition to break slumbers so manifestly sweet and satisfying. She awoke with a start, and it amazed Mr. Polly to see swift terror flash into her eyes. Instantly it had gone again. "'Lor!' she said, her face softening with relief. "'I thought you were Jim.' "'I'm never Jim,' said Mr. Polly. "'You've got his sort of hat.' "'Oh!' said Mr. Polly, and leant over the bar. "'It just came into my head that you was Jim,' said the plump lady, dismissed the topic, and stood up. "'I believe I was having forty winks,' she said. If all the truth was told, what can I do for you? Cold meat, said Mr. Polly. There is cold meat, the plump woman admitted. And room for it. The plump woman came and leant over the bar, and regarded him judicially, but 
kindly. "'There's some cold broiled beef,' she said, and added, "'A bit of crisp lettuce?' "'New mustard,' said Mr. Polly, "'and a tankard.' "'A tankard.' They understood each other perfectly. "'Looking for work?' asked the plump woman. "'In a way,' said Mr. Polly. They smiled like old friends. Whatever the truth may be about love, there is certainly such a thing as friendship at first sight. They liked each other's voices. They liked each other's way of smiling and speaking. "'It's such beautiful weather this spring,' said Mr. Polly explaining everything. "'What sort of work do you want?' she asked. "'I've never properly thought that out,' said Mr. Polly. "'I've been looking round for ideas.' "'Will you have your beef in the tap or outside? That's the tap.' Mr. Polly had a glimpse of an oaken settle. "'In the tap will be handier for you,' he said. "'Hear that?' said the plump lady. Hear what? Listen. Presently the silence was broken by a distant howl. Over! Eh? she said. He nodded. That's the ferry, and there isn't a ferryman. Er, uh, could I? Can you punt? Er, uh, never tried. Well, pull the pole out before you reach the end of the punt, that's all try mr polly went out again into the sunshine at times one can tell so much so briefly here are the facts then bare he found a punt and a pole got across to the steps on the opposite side picked up an elderly gentleman in an alpaca jacket and a pith helmet cruised with him vaguely for twenty minutes conveyed him torturously into the midst of a thicket of forget-me-not spangled sedges, splashed the water-weed over him, hit him twice with the punt-pole, and finally landed him, alarmed but abusive, in treacherous soil at the edge of a hay-meadow about forty yards downstream, where he immediately got into difficulties with a noisy, aggressive little white dog, which was guardian of a jacket. Mr. Polly returned in a complicated manner to his moorings. He found the plump woman rather flushed and tearful, and seated at one of the green tables outside. "'I've been laughing at you,' she said. "'What for?' asked Mr. Polly. "'I ain't had such a laugh since Jim came home. When you hit his head, it hurt my side, huh?' "'It didn't hurt his head, not particularly she waved her head did you charge him anything uh gratis said mr polly i never thought of it the plump woman pressed her hands to her side and laughed silently for a space you ought to have charged him something she said you better come and have your cold meat before you do any more punting you and me'll get on together Presently she came and stood watching him eat. "'You eat better than you punt,' she said, and then, "'I dare say you could learn to punt.' "'Wax to receive and marble to retain,' said Mr. Polly. 
this beef is a bit of all right ma'am i could have done differently if i hadn't been punting on an empty stomach there's a queer feeling as the pole goes in i've never held with fasting said the plump woman you want a ferryman i want an odd man about the place well i'm odd all right what's your wages not much but you'll get tips and pickings i've a sort of feeling it would suit you i've a sort of feeling it would what's the duties fetch and carry ferry garden uh, wash bottles ceritis parabus that's about it said the fat woman uh, give me a trial i've more than half a mind or i wouldn't have said anything about it i suppose you're all right you've got a sort of half respectable look about you i suppose you haven't done anything oh bit of arson said mr polly as if he jested so long as you haven't the habit said the plump woman my first time ma'am said mr polly munching his way through an excellent big leaf of lettuce and my last it's all right if you haven't been to prison said the plump woman it isn't what a man's happened to do makes him bad we all happen to do things at times it's bringing it home to him and spoiling his self-respect does the mischief you don't look a wrong un have you been to prison never nor a reformatory nor any institution not me do i look reformed can you paint and carpenter a bit well i'm ripe for it have a bit of cheese if i might and the way she brought the cheese showed mr polly that the business was settled in her mind he spent the afternoon exploring the premises of the potwell inn and learning the duties that might be expected of him such as stockholm tarring fences digging potatoes swabbing out boats helping people land embarking landing and timekeeping for the hirers of two rowing boats and one canadian canoe bailing out the said vessels and concealing their leaks and defects from prospective hirers persuading inexperienced hirers to start downstream rather than up repairing rollocks and taking inventories of returning boats with a view to supplementary charges cleaning boots sweeping chimneys house painting cleaning windows sweeping out and sanding the tap and bar cleaning pewter washing glasses turpentining woodwork whitewashing generally plumbing and engineering repairing locks and clocks waiting and tapsters work generally beating carpets and maps cleaning bottles and saving corks taking into the cellar moving tapping and connecting beer casks and their engines blocking and destroying wasps nests doing forestry with several trees drowning superfluous kittens and dog fancying as required assisting in the rearing of ducklings in the care of various poultry bee-keeping stabling baiting and grooming horses and asses cleaning and garing motor-cars and bicycles inflating tyres and repairing punctures recovering the bodies of drowned persons from the river as required and assisting people in trouble in the water first aid and sympathy improvising and superintending a bathing station for visitors 
attending inquests and funerals in the interests of the establishment, scrubbing floors, and all the ordinary duties of a scullion, the ferry, chasing hens and goats from the adjacent cottages out of the garden, making up paths and superintending drainage, gardening generally, delivering bottled beer and soda-water siphons to the neighbourhood, running miscellaneous errands, removing drunken and offensive persons from the premises by tact or muscle as occasion required, keeping in with the local policeman, defending the premises in general, and the orchard in particular from depredators. "'Can but try it,' said Mr. Polly towards tea-time. "'When there's nothing else on hand, I suppose I might do a bit of fishing.'" End of section one.